Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode... <laughs> Pardon me. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jill Chenault. I will do him in if I ever catch him doing anything like that to my baby again. My little fat baby is going to be in a dry diaper. And if that son of a bitch doesn't understand that, then I'm going to have to cut him out the picture if you know what I mean. That and more. But before that, I want to talk about one of my new favorite online stores, Thrive Market. I have had such a great personal experience getting my food, my my kitchen supplies, my bathroom supplies, you know, your grocery shopping at thrivemarket.com. Now, we are talking the best, the most organic, non-toxic, BPA-free, non-GMO, no artificial ingredients sorts of products at 25 to 50% off shipped right to your door. You know what else you can do? You can do price comparisons right there on Thrive Market's site to see the retail price versus what they're charging. You know, compare it to, say, Whole Foods or any place you might have to go out to go to the grocery. You know, they cut out the middleman so they can pass the savings right on to their members. I was so excited. The box came so quickly. I got myself a bunch of Laura bars and some green superfood mix that I've been making smoothies with. They had grain-free cat food for donkey. I've got all kinds of soups and soaps, all kinds of stuff in the bathroom now. You can do specific searches. For example, if you're vegan, you can curate so that you're only looking at their vegan products. So you'll get $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and a 30-day trial membership if you go to thrivemarket.com slash risk. And keep in mind, their prices are already 25 to 50% below retail. You're going to be amazed at the quality and the selection at thrivemarket.com slash risk for $60 off and free shipping and a 30-day trial membership at thrivemarket.com slash risk. Also, these days you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast. You can listen whenever you want. So why are you still taking trips to the post office when you can do your postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office from your desk 24-7. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter package from your own computer and printer, and then the mail carrier picks it up. Just click print, and then you're done. It couldn't be easier. We've used Stamps.com at risk 
Disc and the Story Studio for years now, and we've always loved it. And right now, you can use our offer code RISK for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage and a digital scale, plus a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is DJ Premier behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Where I'm From. These are two stories of very strong women who find a lot of inspiration in their families, their heritage. I love these two stories. This is a good episode, my friends. But before we get to the stories, I have some big news about stuff that's going on at our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. And that is, you know, in the past every few weeks, we've put up a bonus story, a story that you can't hear on the regular podcast. Well, we've seen that it works. So we're going to start doing it every single week. From now on, every week, there will be a new bonus story and now an all-new feature as well. And that is that every week we're going to put up a check-in of mine. That is a sort of audio journal entry of the week where uh, maybe I'm reflecting on a story that was told on the show that week or interviewing someone on the staff or just, you know, reacting to anything else going on in my life. Here, I'll play a little snippet of this week's check-in. I'll take the music out from behind me so you can hear the snippet now. I was the middle child in my family. My two older brothers were too, I couldn't relate to them about sports, you know. My my two sisters, I couldn't relate to them about girl stuff. I was always the black sheep. I knew I was gay from day one. I, I just loved fantasizing and being in, a, in my own head. So I was usually locked in my own room or down in the basement listening to records. And in my adulthood, I have regressed back to that. I, I'm very much still in my own universe and part of my goal with with doing these check-ins is to start to have a little bit more leeway to start exploring some of this stuff which might not fit into some of my neatly crafted little stories but might just be like this like me right now just saying you know what motherfuckers i'm lonely (laughs) All right, okay, that's what that sounds like. Uh, And there's going to be a new one every week, and so I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth or, or, you know, what issues might 
might arise, but uh, it, that should be exciting. Interesting. Listen, if you give $10 or more a month, you also have access to the ad-free versions of the show. So there's something for Patreon patrons who like to hear me talk, and there's something for Patreon patrons who want to hear a lot less of me talking. All right. Let's get to someone other than me talking now. Let's get to our first story, and it is by Melissa Slaughter. Now, you can find Melissa over at hoppamag.com. She is also one of the co-hosts of the podcast We're Not All Ninjas about Asian-American representation in the movies. Here she is now. This is Melissa Slaughter with the story we call Less Alone. The first Asian face that I saw that wasn't someone directly related to me was in a movie theater that smelled of stale popcorn and old Coke bottles, and it was the 1998 Disney movie Mulan, a cartoon about a Chinese female folk hero. The thing is, I grew up in a very small town in Oklahoma, and my brother and I were just one of a handful of Asian faces. I didn't even meet another Asian kid until I was in the eighth grade. Most kids, thanks to Mulan being the only thing they saw, asked us if we were Chinese. That was their assumption. Are you Chinese? No, we're Japanese. But is that like Chinese? (laughs) Geography was not very big in my hometown. And the thing is, I didn't even really have a strong connection to my Japanese side. Most of our family lived in states far away. Uh, Sometimes we spoke to my grandmother and grandfather on the phone. There was once a wedding where we met people. There was once a funeral, but that was about it. I was a lone half-Asian kid in a very small town, and I had no one to talk to about it. I was isolated, I had no community, I had no vocabulary to how I felt. And that's kind of how it was for my entire childhood, all the way through college, until I moved to Seattle, Washington. Now in Seattle, their largest minority community is Asian Americans, and it's about 14%. And I had just graduated from theater school, and I was cast in a big show called Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. Now this is based off of an award-winning book that talked about Japanese internment. Japanese internment is a time in American history when 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans were placed into essentially prison camps in the middle of the country during World War II. Now my brother and I actually didn't know too much about it. They didn't really teach it in Oklahoma and we knew that our family was somehow affected But we didn't talk to anyone about it. My mother had told us bits and pieces, but it wasn't really a part of who we were. So on the second day of rehearsal, we were told, bring in your immigrant stories. Our uh, director, Annie, emailed us all. It was like, get them together because this is what the piece is about and we need a bond. And so my grandfather had been dead for several years at this point. And instead I called my uncle Frank. And he said, "Uh, I know your family was in Hawaii and they were kicked out of their home and they were homeless 
and they lived in an abandoned schoolhouse with one piece of furniture that was a kasi. So I pack up that story and I go to rehearsal and I don't know anyone in this cast. It's about 23 people, 19 of whom are Asian, and I don't know a single person there. So I go into rehearsal and it's a room I at least know because I'd been going in and out of these rooms for about a year uh, living in Seattle and it was this big bright room with green walls, big dance mirrors, open windows in the middle of fall in Seattle and fall in Seattle is beautiful. Everyone should visit. And we had the table set up in a square so everyone could see each other. Everyone was equal. And I just kind of sat in a corner by myself. And Annie says, all right, well, let's begin. Who's ready to share their story? And we all kind of look at each other uneasily. And I raise my hand and I say, okay, I'll start. And she lets me start. And I begin. Uh, my great-grandfather's name is Hajime. He came from Japan during a rice famine and moved to Hawaii and during the war. And I start to feel my throat tightening. And I start to feel my jaw clenching. And my breath is getting faster. And tears start running down my face like you would not believe. For whatever reason, reasons that I didn't understand, I was just weeping uncontrollably. And I, when I cry, I cannot speak. So I could not, for the life of me, finish my story. And Annie says, okay, no, take a moment, we'll get back to you. And everyone else starts to share their stories. And this goes on for about two hours of me just sitting in the corner chair, just sobbing. And it's almost lunchtime, and I'm, I'm realizing I look like a weirdo. <laughs> I look crazy, but I, I've made sense of what's happening. And so I raise my hand right before lunch, and I say, Annie, can I say something? And she looks at me like, I don't know, can you? <laughs> and she says, okay. And I say to the room, this is the first time in my life I have ever sat in a room of Asian people who are not directly related to me. And I was 23 years old. And I'm wiping my face and we break for lunch and suddenly all of these people come at me and this girl says, I'm half so I understand what it means to not be um, one thing or another. You're an other and I get that. And someone runs up to me and says, you know, you have a community now. And this woman, Kathy, comes to me and she, she speaks very quickly. So Kathy says, you know, I used to do this piece where I would go to schools around the country and I would do this piece about Japanese internment and there was a girl in Idaho who was just like you and during my piece she sat right in the front row and she cried the entire time and at the end she came up to me and she said that she felt validated seeing someone on stage who looked like her and that's how I felt. I was validated in being who I was because I suddenly had this community in I had this new group of friends. We went out every night. We ate so much food. And the show became this big cathartic moment for me because I had to learn about my own history. I had to learn about Japanese history. Um, there was a moment right before act two where we would cross through the audience and it was the moment when the Japanese are kicked out of their home and they have to get on a bus and they can take only two suitcases of what they could carry. And I would, every night it was really emotional because it was, this is the moment that my family was kicked out. My family had to do a similar walk out of their home because someone told them, you can't stay here because you look like the enemy. So the thing is, I, previous to this show, 
didn't know anything about World War II history. I actually had purposefully separated myself from this time period in history because it was painful. In the sixth grade, a ginger-haired boy who I had known my entire life turned to me and he said, Pearl Harbor is all your fault because you're Japanese. Okay, it's not my fault. I wasn't even born. And my family was in the pineapple fields farming. And a pickup truck came by and picked them up and took all the Japanese home when the bombs hit because they knew something terrible was about to happen or was happening. So now I know a little bit about my history. I know how to be Asian American. And I learned all that through this one show. And in turn, I get to teach this. I get to do Kathy's old job. I go to schools around the country and I teach kids about internment. And I teach them vocabulary on how to discuss racism, ethics. I teach them about internment, concentration, loyalty, allegiance, intersectionality, all of these words that they need to know, that they need to hear. And I make sure that Mulan is not the first Asian face that they see. And at my first show on Vashon Island, a fourth grader came up to me and just looked at me and said, hey, I'm half Japanese too. And we looked at one another and I, for a minute we were a community. And for a minute we were less alone. Thank you very much everyone. This is Risk. This is Kishibashi behind me now, and we just heard from Melissa Slaughter. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a long and totally uninterrupted story from Jill Chenault. But before that, I wanted to ask, are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to find it. Well, ZipRecruiter knew that there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% 
of employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just a day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how to find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs, and right now our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Risk is also brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 18,000 classes in business, marketing, entrepreneurship, technology. You can take classes in graphic design, social media marketing, illustration, uh, you name it, they've got it. So whether you're trying to deepen your professional skill set, start a side hustle, or just explore a new hobby, Skillshare is there to keep you learning and thriving. One that I've been looking at recently is this class called iPhone video essentials like there are so so many techniques you can use to make amazing videos just with your own phone and this class is just chock full of great information you can join the millions of students already learning on skillshare today with a special offer just for risk listeners get two months of skillshare for just 99 cents that's right skillshare is offering risk listeners two months of unlimited access to over 18,000 classes for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash risk. Again, that's Skillshare.com slash risk to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash risk. Now, I am so excited about this next story. (laughs) Jill Chenault is such a remarkable person in so many ways, as you are soon to hear. Before we start, I I really should thank Sam Dingman for introducing me to Jill. Now, Sam has told some incredible stories on Risk before, but he has a podcast of his own called Family Ghosts, and his team did a remarkable version of this story, and then we asked if we could approach Jill to do an expanded version that is more in the style of risk. So that is what we present to you now. This is Jill Chenault with a story we call One of Them. You know, I've often wondered why I never got married. I mean, at this point in life, a lot of my peers, my friends, they're married the first time, maybe even the second time, they've got kids, but not me. I kind of think it might be because I've always carried myself like I'm not going to put up with any bullshit. Maybe that kind of repels most men because they know there might be some bullshit, but I'm just not going to tolerate it. I'm going to cut them off at the knees. And I've often wondered if that's wrong. And if so, what's wrong with me? Can I fix it? But then I think about the women in my family, my mother, her sisters, the stories that I've heard about my grandmother, my great aunts. Nobody puts up with any bullshit. Nobody. 
and it goes back generations. So maybe it's genetic, and I just can't help it. I don't know. When I was a kid, we spent a lot of time at my great-grandma Buff's house. Now, she was dead before I was born, but I heard stories about her. And I heard that Buff was nobody to be trifled with. But anything big that happened, graduation, a wedding, a funeral, we would spend that holiday or that celebration would take place at her house in Pontiac. The address was 146 Jackson Street. We just called it 146. Now, great-grandma Buff passed the house down to her daughter, Corinne. The house was a nice house. It was a modest house, but it was nice. The only thing is, I never sat at the big table with my mother and my father and my aunts, and I just never made it to the big table. And sometimes we used to joke about how somebody was going to have to die before we could get to the big table. But it was nothing to sneeze at. You couldn't complain about being at a little table because we had real cloth tablecloths. We had Waterford crystal little glasses, and the salt and pepper shakers were Waterford crystal. We had real silverware, so you really couldn't complain. But the big table held a certain mystique because that's where grown folks did their talking. Well... After dinner and after the table had been cleared, we would quite often try to make our way over to the big table. Gradually, after maybe a little bit of pound cake, maybe a little bit of wine, if it was Christmas time, a little eggnog, which would set you on your ass if you had more than one cup. We would ask my mom and my Aunt Oyella, tell us the story about the crazy man from Mississippi. Every family gathering, we would ask to hear this story. And the story always began the same way. Albert Roberts was black as coal and mean as a snake. And we would just be enraptured. So Albert Roberts, black as coal, mean as a snake, was the letter writer for Coffeeville, Mississippi. The whole town, black people and white people. So that means that anybody who had anything to be written for them or read to them had to go to him for help because he was the most literate man in town. And that was a source of great pride for him. And so back in the late 1800s was when he was a grown man, a show enough grown man. Now, he got a little full of himself. We heard that he always had his chest puffed up a little bit. Now, when he was a young man, he married my great-grandmother, Buff. And they started having babies almost right away. And when they started having babies, he decided that that would be a good time to start whooping her ass on a regular basis. As the kids got older, he started whooping them too. But of all the kids they had, Corinne, Leonidas, Billy Goat, or at least that's what we called her, great aunt Billy Goat, all of them. The one that he did not whoop was Mildred. She was the youngest. And the story goes that when he was whooping all the other kids one day and he raised his hand to hit little Mildred, she put her hands on her little hips and said, you better not ever hit me, you black son of a bitch. And he never did. Now, eventually, Buff got sick of all of this and even though she did not have a job she decided that she was going to get a hold of her shotgun and invite her husband to leave the house which he did promptly he went to live with his sister further in the mississippi delta but he did stay in touch with her he was a letter writer so he wrote letters to her but the letters were not nice letters they were threatening letters 
Sometimes he would say things like, I shall gently clasp my fingers about your throat and slowly squeeze the life from you. He wrote hate mail to his children. His children. There was one time when somebody, I guess it was his second daughter, I'm not sure, it might have been Corinne, he had sent some shoes for her birthday and he didn't feel that she was prompt enough in thanking him and she didn't write a thank you note. And so he wrote her a letter saying, just act like I'm dead, just like your mother has taught you and act like you don't even know who I am. Well, she was maybe six years old at the time. He wrote these hate letters throughout their lives and when the Great Migration North began for black folks, the older kids moved up north first, he still wrote hate letters to them. He didn't really even know them that well anymore. Eventually, Buff moved north too. And by then, her youngest, Mildred, was in high school. Well, there came a time when Albert, when all of the money that he had saved and invested in the stock market was gone. Here's a man who has done everything that the laws of America say to do. He stayed out of trouble. He didn't drink. He didn't womanize. He saved his money. He invested in the stock market. And now he has lost everything. So he took the train up north to Pontiac to 146 Jackson Street to ask for money from his grown kids and from his wife. Now, he had abused everybody who was in that house at that point. But he said, I am still your father and you still have to help me. Well, Buff, Mildred, all of them, all of his kids, Bop, who was his second oldest, they said, no, we don't have to do anything for you. You're on your own. Well, he started acting a fool and he kicked up so much sand that eventually they called his son-in-law, Big Scott. Now, Big Scott was an Oakland County Sheriff's deputy. So Big Scott had a pistol. And he came over there to confront his father-in-law and to tell his father-in-law, you got to stop acting a fool or, and leave this house because I can take you to jail. Albert Roberts, black as coal, mean as a snake, couldn't get himself under control for the life of him. Or maybe he didn't want to because he was proud. And so Big Scott hauled his ass off to jail. This is in Oakland County. Oakland County is unfriendly to black folks now. So you know if they got an outside Negro making trouble in their little vicinity... They were happy to lock his black ass up. So he was locked up for 30 days. He had never been locked up before. He got out without anybody in the family finding out. Now the judge had told him, when we release you, you get on the next thing smoking that's going to take you back to Mississippi because we don't want you up here. But he went straight back to 146. He waited until it got dark and he hid in the shed behind the house. When it got dark, he took off his shoes, he crept over to that house, went in through a basement window, grabbed an axe from the basement, and went upstairs to kill everybody in the house. Specifically, he wanted to kill Buff, because he blamed her for everything bad that had ever happened to him. Now, the story always was that the only people in the house were Buff, her daughter Bop, and Bop's two children, who were a year old and three years old and they were sleeping in their crib so he crept up those stairs but by the time he got up there Buff had realized that somebody was in the house and she told her daughter Bop who was in the room with her little kids you put this dresser drawer up against this door I'm gonna jump out the window and go get help so she jumped out 
the second floor window and went door to door in her nightclothes, which was quite scandalous back then. A lady didn't go outside in her nightclothes under any circumstances. Now, when they told us the story, they were always very specific in saying that the youngest girl, who supposedly was the meanest, the one that had told him, don't you ever hit me, you black son of a bitch, Mildred, that Mildred was in Chicago visiting Cousin Susie. Don't ever ride in a car with Cousin Susie. Now, I thought that was her name until I was grown. But they always said, don't ever ride in a car with Cousin Susie whenever they said her name. Well, it's a good thing that she was there because she was so mean that she might have tried to fight back and she might have gotten hurt by Albert Roberts when he had that axe because she didn't have enough sense and couldn't be calm enough to confront him without trying to fight him. So it's a good thing that she was in Chicago with Cousin Susie. Don't ever ride in a car with Cousin Susie. So eventually, Buff got one of the neighbors to let her in. This lady's name was Nirvana. Nerve. Nirvana and her husband had a telephone. Not everybody had one then, but Nerve had one. So when Buff and Nerve ran back to 146, Nerve's husband called the police. And by the time the police got there, Albert Roberts had managed to get into the room where my great-aunt Bop had barricaded herself with her two babies, Reva and Karen, and he had bludgeoned all three of them with that axe. He broke Reva's back. He fractured Karen's skull. He had split Bop's head open with that axe, too. And the story goes, he realized what he had done, the horror of it, and he stabbed himself in the chest repeatedly in the backyard of 146. Now, for me, when I was a kid, this was like a ghost story. It was something that I would ask my mother to tell us about just because I was thrilled at being at the big table without being sent away. But one day when I was about 15, I said to my mother, wait a minute, what did you say his name was? And my mother said, you hear it every time we tell the story. Albert Roberts, black as coal, mean as a snake. I said, but wait a minute, isn't Aunt Mildred's last name, Roberts? And my mother said, well, yeah, who the hell did you think I've been talking about? This was my grandfather. This was your great-grandfather. What is wrong with you? I was shocked. I could not believe that this happened, first of all. And when my mom was telling us the story, some of the people that were in the story were sitting right there with us and never said a word, never batted an eye. And our family had kept living in that house and treating it as the very hub of everything involved in our family. So I asked my mother, why would they stay in that house? Why are we here now? Why would your grandmother stay in the house after something that terrible happened? My mother said to me, well, my grandmother said to me once that she had cleaned too many white folks' toilets to let some crazy nigga run her out of her house. And then my mother ate a little bit more pound cake and had a little bit more ice cream. Now, Aunt Reva and Aunt Karen and their mother, my great-aunt Bob, all survived that incident. The only one that ended up dead was Albert Roberts himself. I wondered if a person could really stab himself to death. But I was a teenager, so I didn't really question it. But I went on to become a defense attorney, and I did a lot of murder cases. And I had to learn about things like how much force it takes to pierce a person's sternum, particularly the sternum of a grown-ass man, and 
how quite often after the first stab wound, the body might not bleed as much with the subsequent stab wounds because they start to go into shock. And I wondered, can somebody stab themselves in the chest repeatedly like they had always said? So one day, I was talking to my mother and I just casually said, you know how Albert Roberts died in the backyard? I've been wondering, do you really think that he stabbed himself to death? I mean, don't you think that maybe when Nerve and Buff got back to that house and saw that he had tried to take out everybody else in the house, that maybe they did something to him? And my mother, who's usually just as sweet as pie, she said to me, don't you ever ask me that again. And I got scared. And I did not ask her that again for many, many years. Well, by then, I was a young adult. I was dating seriously and thinking, maybe I should consider getting married one day. But I was also learning that being a tough woman was not always attractive to men. That upset me because I didn't know how to be anything else. I could be soft and gentle and stroke a fevered brow and comfort you when you're distraught. But if I love you and someone does something to you, I'm coming after them. It's just that simple. You can go with me, you can stay home, but I'm gonna fuck them up. And that was kind of how all of us viewed things that way. Even if we didn't act on it, we were always willing and we always knew how to take care of ourselves physically. My mama had a pearl-handled pistol in her dresser drawer for most of my life. So her mother knew how to shoot and was willing to shoot somebody who came in that house. So that's just kind of how we are. And I realized that that could be a hindrance when it came to modern-day dating, the knowledge of how to kill someone, the willingness to fight someone. It's not always considered a good attribute in someone that a man is considering marrying. Now, no matter what physical damage Albert Roberts did that night, he did not break the spirit of anybody in that house. Those women, his wife Buff, her granddaughters Reva and Karen, her daughter Bop, everybody went on to live exceptional lives. The men that the women of my mom's generation married knew coming in that these were some tough old ladies. And I saw how they deferred to these old ladies with blue hair with every major decision that had to be made when the family was together. They gave orders like nobody's business, like drill sergeants. You go get this table. You go get such and so. Why did you park your car in the driveway and block so-and-so in? You know she's going to have to leave early to go to the meeting at church. They ran things. One of the things that Aunt Mildred did, she was the first black female pharmacist in the state of Michigan. And she opened her own store. Now, this was at a time when black women were not going to pharmacy school. But she would take a lot of the money that she made and pay for the tuition of little black kids in the neighborhood who wanted to go to college, whose families didn't have money. And they were big on going to school. When I went to college, I was shocked that so many of my friends were the first members of their families to go to college. My Aunt Reva, the one whose back had been broken when she was hit with that axe, she went on and got her undergrad degree at Juilliard and her master's degree at Howard. Her sister, whose skull was fractured with that axe, had her master's degree in elementary education and went on to become a school principal. These women, not only did they go to college, it was assumed always that they were going to go to college, that they would not bring home average grades under any circumstances. My mother graduated high school with a four-point GPA when she was 15 years old. She went on to go to Wayne State University in Detroit as a little kid, basically, who still had pigtails. She wasn't allowed to straighten her hair with a hot comb yet. 
because she was only 15 when she graduated and became a freshman in college. Now, these women, they can bake some pies and cakes that will make you roll on the floor and giggle. And they could teach you all of these womanly arts and would encourage you to show your attraction to the man that you love. Don't be shy about it. I was embarrassed at times at the way my Aunt Old Yella would act with her husband and the way that my mother acts with my father still. They're in their 80s, and I still have to sometimes remind them, look, you can't be rubbing on each other when we're in the room. Just wait until we leave the room. On the other hand, those same women will not hesitate to punch somebody in the face if they do something to someone that they love. When my sixth grade elementary school teacher put his hands on me, he put his hands on me in a hostile fashion and shook me when I was 11 years old. He came to the house for parent-teacher conference. And when he came to our house, my mother was laying for him. My father had gone on to work and said, I know you can handle this. I'll see you when I get home. Please don't hurt him. And they laughed about it. But when the teacher showed up, I was hiding upstairs and kind of peeking downstairs. They went about the business of carrying on my parent-teacher conference and talked about my grades and everything and how well I was doing academically. And then my mother asked him, are you finished? And he said, yes. And my mother, she never raised her voice. She said, now, my child told me that you put your hands on her. And I told her that you will never, ever again put your hands on her for any reason. Do you understand me? And he smiled and nodded, but didn't say anything. Well, she didn't move. She said, I asked you a question. Do you understand me? Did you hear what I said to you? And he said, yes. And she did that one eyebrow thing, raised an eyebrow. And he then said, yes, ma'am. Now, this is a white man in our house. And my mother is threatening him implicitly. And I loved it. But that's the women in my family. Don't bother anybody. Don't be mean or unfair to anybody that we love because we will come for you. And that's just how I am. So maybe that's why I'm not married, never have been, might not ever be. Somebody once told me, you don't look like you need a man. Well, hell, I was raised to not need a man. My great-grandmother, Buff, worked in private family, not as a maid. In private family, you work for one family, preferably a respectable family. Your status in the black community is determined by the status of your white people. In my family, they worked for respectable white folks, and you work for that one family as long as you can. Sometimes you work in private family for generations. Your mother worked for this family. Now you work for that family. My mother said that great-grandma Buff would tell my mother and her sisters and her one brother, you're going to get your education so you don't have to do what I'm doing. And you won't ever have to depend on any man for anything. You're going to learn to do for yourself and make your own decisions. And if for some reason you can't get an education, not don't want to, can't, because don't want to is not an option. Well, then you go to Kalamazoo or Berrien Springs and you pick berries. That was a seasonal migrant job that some folks had that they didn't particularly like, but it beat the hell out of working in white folks' houses. Because, she said, if you work in white folks' houses, she will never be satisfied with anything you do, and you'll spend most of your time running from him. So you get your education so you do not have to deal with that. We were also pushed to learn things like anything artsy, because at family gatherings we were supposed to be able to recite a poem or play an instrument or sing a song. And we're also supposed to be able to discuss politics and world events. 
We are not ever to end a sentence with a preposition. We weren't allowed to say ain't, but, booty, nigga. We weren't allowed to say any of that as children. That was low. We were above that. We were Sididi Negroes, and we still are Sididi Negroes. Another thing that has plagued me during my quest to find true and long-lasting love is my competitiveness, which I think I get from my mother. When I was a little kid, if my mom was teaching me how to play anything, whether it was jacks or gin rummy or scrabble, she would explain the rules. Then she would say, do you want to practice? Maybe we practice a little bit. And she'd offer pointers. And then when she thought I was ready, she would ask me, are you ready to play now? And if I said yes, she would commence to whoop my ass at whatever it was. It didn't matter. She was going to beat me until I could beat her. And I remember my Aunt Samantha and Aunt Oyella would say, Cookie, why don't you just let her win? Just let her win once. I mean, she's just a little kid. And my mother would say, no, I'm not going to let her win because life is not going to let her win. She has to win by competing and winning on her own. When she walks out that door, she's going to walk out into a world of people that don't really care about her and ain't going to let her win. So it's best for her to learn that now and learn how to fight now if she wants to win. So when I was in high school, there was this guy, Kevin Brown, at my high school, who was one of the finest boys in town. And he was so fine back then that I bet you he's still fine. I bet time has not done anything to damp down his fineness. Well, he played tennis and I played tennis. I thought, well, if I get him to play tennis with me, maybe if he's alone with me, he'll start to kind of like me too. And he'll ask me out. So we went to our local park and we were playing tennis. And I was beating him because that's what I was raised to do. And he started to get frustrated and I had a good serve so I could ace him. He got frustrated and he threw his racket at me. He said it was an accident, but that racket came flying over the net in my direction and I was a little hot under the collar. And at that point, I decided I'm just going to have to beat his ass. I'm not just going to win. I'm going to crush him. And I did. And by the time I finished crushing him, I didn't care if he asked me out or not. I thought he threw a tennis racket at me. In fact, I was going to tell everybody how bad I beat him. And I did. But he never did ask me out. And I think that might have had something to do with it. I think that my willingness to mix it up a little bit has been a detriment not only to dating, but even, I mean, I was engaged once for about 15 minutes. And on one of the visits that we made to visit my family, my family had a little dog named Muffin who was just cute. She looked just like Tramp in Lady and the Tramp. He kicked Muffin. And that's why I was only engaged for 15 minutes because I took the ring off on the spot and I made it clear to him, that's not going to happen because if you will kick this cute little dog and we have kids together, you might kick one of my children. And if you kick one of my children, I'm going to have to kill you. So it's best for all involved if we go our separate ways. So that was the only time I came close to getting married. (laughs) Very sad. So when I was in my 30s and I was really doing criminal law in Detroit, I had to learn a lot about the human body and what it takes to kill a human being and things about, you know, how quickly a person is likely to lose consciousness after they bleed from a certain part of their body, like an aorta or something like that. And so I decided that I was going to go up to the county clerk's office and pull Albert Roberts' death certificate. I read it, and it didn't say anything about stabbing oneself or being stabbed. 
in the space marked cause of death, it said suicide by cutting throat with razor. Now, to me, that meant that he didn't really stab himself like everybody had said. We know that much is wrong. That part of the story that I had been told over and over and over again was incorrect. But beyond that, the fact that his throat was slit with a razor reminded me of this joke. And if there are any black folks out there, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about before I say it. Legend goes that a black lady from the South, particularly from Mississippi, will cut you in a heartbeat. We're not going to shoot you. We're not going to hit you over the head with a frying pan. We're going to cut you. My friends and I had always joked about that. We would be out to dinner and maybe somebody would take something off of someone else's plate without permission. And the other person would say, be careful, or I'm going to cut you. Well, when I was in law school, there was this woman named Donna. She was my best friend in law school. And she was, her family was from Mississippi. And she came to visit my family in the small town of Lansing, Michigan. We're getting ready to go to the little tiny Lansing Mall. We get out to the car and Donna snaps her fingers and says, wait a minute, I got to go back. I forgot my razor. And my mother, who had walked us to the door, said, oh, no, no, honey, don't worry about it. It'll be safe here. I'm going to keep it here for you. You'll be just fine. I laughed about that when I saw that Albert Roberts' throat was slit with a razor because it reminded me of Donna and all the joking over the years and how it was kind of a well-known assertion that black ladies from Mississippi might have a razor in their stocking or in their boot or even in their hat, and they might cut you. So when I saw this detail in the death certificate, I became even more suspicious about the truth of the story that we had always been told by Aunt Oyella and my mother. So when I talked to my mother, I decided I was going to ask her about it. And by then, some things had changed since the last time I'd asked her about it, and she told me not to ever again. By this time, my niece was born, and my mother so loved my niece from the very start. And so did I. I was astounded at how immediate that attachment was and how willing all of us were to make any sacrifice necessary for the well-being of this little girl. So I asked my mother, I said, now, given how much you love this baby, don't you think that maybe your grandmother felt the same way about Aunt Reva and Aunt Karen? And maybe when she saw how Albert Roberts had hurt them, she might have even thought they were dead, that maybe she would become so enraged that she did him in and slit his throat with a razor. And my mother said, well, no. I only knew my grandmother's being a nice, sweet woman. I can't imagine her doing that. I just don't think she would do such a thing. And I said, but now that you have this grandbaby, don't you think that you would become enraged if somebody did something to her, hit her with an axe? I mean, I thought you were going to kill her father when he simply left her in a wet diaper for 30 minutes. And you called me on the phone and ranted about how I will do him in if I ever catch him doing anything like that to my baby again. My little fat baby is going to be in a dry diaper. And if that son of a bitch doesn't understand that, then I'm going to have to cut him out the picture if you know what I mean. Don't you think that maybe if he hit her with an axe that you wouldn't just kick him out of the family but you might just dispatch him to his great reward. And my mother again said, all I know is that my grandmother was a very sweet person. She was very gentle. And I can't imagine her doing anything like that. So I let it go again. But then I decided that maybe 
I could get more facts. Not just suppositions and speculating like we were doing, but actual facts. So I went to the microfiche section of the county building in Oakland County where all of this had happened in 1927. I knew a date of when it happened. And I thought, even though a lot of times back then and even now, predominantly white newspapers do not pay a whole lot of attention to what goes on among black folks. If the black person is a perpetrator and the black person is a victim, then it might not get written up. But maybe the death of a black man who was from Mississippi, who wasn't even from here, the violent death and all the mayhem that occurred right before he died, maybe the white newspaper back then would have cared. So I went through all this microfiche. It took hours. And I finally found a newspaper article. And in the newspaper article, it said that when Albert Roberts broke into that house and got that axe and went after everybody, that among the people in that house was his youngest daughter, Mildred, the mean one, the one who had told him, you better not ever hit me, you black son of a bitch. And I thought about the way that Aunt Oyella and my mom had always told the story. They always put Aunt Mildred all the way in Chicago with Cousin Susie, don't ever ride in a car with Cousin Susie. Why did they always add that detail? They never talked about where anybody else was. They only specifically mentioned her, Aunt Mildred. By all accounts, the strongest and the meanest of all the people who were in that house when that fool came in there with that axe. So I decided that I would directly ask my mother if she thought maybe her Aunt Mildred, my great aunt, had killed Albert Roberts. I made a copy of the newspaper article. I mailed it to my mother. I waited until it arrived. And then, after she'd read it, I asked her again, don't you think that maybe these women, maybe together, maybe it was just a Mildred, killed him when they saw what he had done to their family members? And my mother then said, I don't know. I wasn't born. All I know is what they told me. And they told me the same thing that I have told you all of your life. So I let it go again. But recently when we've discussed it, I've been a bit more forceful in making these assertions because at this point, well, everybody that was there is dead. And just about everybody who heard the story in the first generation afterwards, most of them are dead. And I really want to know the truth. But my mother still insists that she cannot imagine her Aunt Mildred doing such a terrible thing or being so violent. I, however, can definitely imagine any woman in my family doing that same thing if they think that some man has killed three members of her family and if she has access to a weapon, I believe that any one of us would take his ass out and not bat an eye about it. Now, one of the bad things about being so willing to stand up for myself is that the desire to do so can be overwhelming. And I've had to learn to control that desire when I do think that someone has wronged me. Now, when I was in my 30s, there was a guy that I knew who I think sexually assaulted me. The last thing I remember about being with him was that I had gone to a club that he had recently opened. I had part of one drink. Now, I can hold my liquor. And I felt really dizzy and disoriented and very hot. 
And I said to him, I don't feel well. I have to go home. And he said, I'll follow you in my car in case the police pull you over because his family was very well connected politically. I think that he thought that if he simply displayed his driver's license to any police officer who might stop me trying to drive home, the police officer would simply leave. So I said, okay, fine. I remember driving home. I remember seeing his headlights in my rearview mirror, seeing that he was right behind me. And I remember watching him park his car on my street. I do not remember inviting him into my apartment or anything like that. But I do remember having a brief conversation with him in front of my building. And when I woke up the next morning in my living room, on my sofa, with my underpants torn, and I was bleeding vaginally. I was in my 30s. I had done my share of fucking. I wasn't, there was no reason for me to bleed, ever. I wasn't on my period. I was not expecting my period. I was always extremely regular with my period. I couldn't figure out why on earth my clothing would be torn and why I still had my shirt and my top and my bra on. So I concluded what I think anybody with any sense would conclude was that this motherfucker had taken advantage of me somehow. But I couldn't remember. I was so disturbed that I couldn't remember. I felt helpless and I hate feeling helpless. The first thing I did was call him. He wouldn't return my calls. I couldn't figure out why. Then I realized, oh, his phone is in my apartment. His phone was under a sofa cushion. But he managed to call me and tell me that he wanted to come and get his phone. So he came to my apartment. He got his phone. And while I had him at my front door, because I wasn't letting him in, I told him that I thought something bad had happened between us. And I wanted to talk about it. He said, oh, I can't talk right now. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. I'm planning my big party. He was having a big party at his parents' house. So he had to go. The next thing I did was contact my doctor, went to the gynecologist, got a full examination. I told him what had happened or what I believed had happened. And when he asked me who it was, I told him. My gynecologist said, that son of a bitch, he was my nephew's roommate when they first went away to college, when they were freshmen. And my nephew said that this boy and some other fellas that came from well-to-do homes had enough money to get an apartment off campus where they would take girls who might have been a little bit unwilling to have sex with them, unwilling or not. And I told my nephew, you need to get another roommate, first of all. Secondly, you don't need to associate with him at all, whatsoever. Don't even be in his company. You don't need to be around nobody like that. And my gynecologist said, I believe he did this. And by the way, your cervix is bruised, and I think you should press charges. Well, I wrestled with that because... As a defense attorney, I knew that the burden of proof was going to be on me. I didn't even know if I had enough evidence for him to be arrested, let alone charged. I just didn't know if I had enough. And I was very, very depressed for a couple of weeks. I went home to spend some time with my family because I was so distraught. And I didn't tell my family. I just couldn't bring myself to tell them. And I was afraid of what my mother might do. Well... Finally, one night I was talking to my mom and she could tell that something was wrong. And she said to me, you'll tell me when you're ready. Finally, I told her what happened. And my mother, the sweet little cookie baking first grade teacher, that was my mother said, let me tell you something. I think you know how to handle this. You're a big girl. You're an athlete. I know you like that aluminum bat that you play softball with. Aren't you the designated hitter or something like that? You're the only one on your team that's allowed to hit the ball over the fence. And they chose you as that because you're likely to hit it over the fence. Isn't that you? That's you, right? 
And I said, yes. And she said, okay, you go get that bat. And then you go deal with him. And you tell him that your mother said that it's okay for you to beat his ass with that bat. A few days later, I went to my friend's house. I have a lot of friends, girlfriends. I got the best girlfriends in the world. And all of them are ride or die. They will back me just like I'll back them. I only went to one of them with this. She was one of my oldest friends, and she was dating a new guy. So there was new love, and he was around all the time. But I went to her house when I was on my way to my acting class one night. And he was there, and I had to speak cryptically in front of him. So I told her, we got something we got to do after I get out of this class. So I need you to be ready to roll out with me. And she said, are we going to do the usual with uh, black hoodies and boots? And I thought, usual? What the hell is she talking about? We've never done anything quite like this before. We've done some other stuff, but we ain't never taken a bat to nobody before. But I said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what you need to wear. And he wanted to know, what you talking about? What are you talking about? She said, we don't want you to know. We want you to stay out of this. But we finally relented. It was new love. He wanted to prove that he wanted to keep her safe. The plan was I was going to go get this guy. They were going to follow me in the boyfriend's SUV. And they were going to park in an alley that I had already chosen. There was a dumpster. There were several dumpsters, actually, in that alley. There was nothing there except this one club that ran alongside the alley. I put the bat behind one of the dumpsters. And I told them, you sit down here in the SUV. Don't get out the car unless I clearly signal to you that I need help or you see that I need help. You help me whoop his ass. And then we'll leave. And we won't run. We're going to walk away and just leave him on the ground if that's what it comes to. So they said, okay. I go into the club and get this fool who foolishly, I mean, he's a fool. He came out with me without putting up much of it. He didn't ask me why I was there. He knew I was angry at him. He knew what I thought he did. He had denied it vehemently but kind of was dismissive also. But when I said, can I talk to you? Will you come outside? And I'm wearing a black hoodie, black combat, but all black. This dumbass followed me outside into the alley. So we walk in the alley and he's just chattering. I've been wanting to talk to you because I don't like the way we left things and blah, 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 blah. I walked him over to the dumpster. I picked up the bat and I said, you know, and I know what you did. Now I got to fuck you up. And he put his hands up like he was being robbed and started begging immediately. Please don't do that. That's not true. I didn't do it. I would never do it. I respect you too much. I've always thought of you like a big sister. I would never, ever do anything like that. That just made me more angry. I said, now you're going to be a bitch. Now you're going to start begging. When that night you were taking advantage of me, you weren't thinking like this. You weren't humble at all. Well, he eventually, in his begging, I'm trying to move around him to get into the middle of the street so that this car can see me, so that I'm within sight of the SUV where my friends are. I had moved around him, and I raised up the bat, and he starts shielding his head, and he said, wait, wait, those people down there in that truck, they're going to see you. And I said, those people are with me. And I waved my hands gently, and they flashed the lights. And I told him, that's how serious I am about fucking you up. Well, then he collapsed down onto the curb and put his head in his hands and was just sobbing, saying, please, please, please don't. Well, I couldn't hit him with the bat. So I said to him, I'm not going to hit you with the bat, but let me tell you something. If anything fucked up happens to you, anything fucked up happens to your family, your dog, your mama, anybody, your daddy, I want you to think that it was me. You sitting here crying like a little bitch. I want you to know that from now on, if you see me someplace out, you leave. You leave before I see you. If I see you and I got time to get to you, I'm going to have to fuck you up. I might not do it right then, 
I might do it later. If your mama's house catches on fire five years from now, I want you to think of me. So I didn't hit him with the bat, but I did scare him out of many social functions for a couple of years after that until I moved away. If he saw me someplace, he left. If I went someplace with my girls and they saw him first, sometimes he would leave when he saw one of them because he assumed that I was with them, which was a smart thing for him to do. I did not strike him, but I did strike fear in his heart. And I'm still torn to this day about whether I should have hit him with the bat. When I think back to that moment, I think about how my great aunt Mildred or whoever might have felt when they had to decide what to do with Albert Roberts. I think about Albert Roberts lying dead in the backyard of 146. And while I might have been justified in beating the shit out of this man with that bat, while I was certainly being true to myself and true to the other Roberts and Winfield women by hitting him with that bat, I'm glad that I didn't. I am equally glad that I am a product of those women. Nobody should just fuck with us all willy-nilly. Nobody should try to harm us. Nobody should try to harm the people that we love because we are capable of doing some really bad things to people who we think have wronged us. But we're also capable of making sound, logical decisions. And in this case, the son of a bitch that I could have left laying on the ground was not worth the trouble that it might have caused me. I think that I would have dishonored the women in my family by jeopardizing my career, my very freedom, by taking that bat to him like he had coming. But as a Roberts Winfield woman, I know what I can do. And I know that in that instance, I did what was right for me. I still think I am as attractive and formidable and intelligent and interesting as any of the Roberts women. That's how they raised me to be. And I still think that I carry myself the way they taught me to carry myself, which is to make it clear to all around me, don't fuck with me, because I'm one of them. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Alicia Keys behind me now. And we just heard from Jill Chenault, who you can find on Twitter 
at jcourtney1n. And thanks to John LaSala, our story editor, for editing that one. It's a beauty. Now, don't forget that the Risk book comes out on July 17th, and we are so goddamned proud of it. It is, it is just spectacular, and we also feel like we could immediately come out with a sequel to it because there are so many other amazing stories that we would love to put in a book. Here's the deal. In order for the book to really succeed, the way things work in the book industry now is you need tons and tons and tons of pre-orders so that makes a splash when it first comes out. So go to theriskbook.com and pre-order a copy for yourself, pre-order copies for friends. It's really going to be great. There's a lot of amazing stories that you know and stories you've never heard before and stories from celebrities and interviews with people. It's really special. Go to the riskbook.com and pre-order and then email me at kevin at riskdashshow.com to let me know you pre-ordered it and you might be eligible for a prize. Now, I just got back from having done the Risk Live show in Pittsburgh and all four of the people who did the show were spectacular and all four of them heard me at the end of one of our episodes saying, hey, we're coming to town in Pittsburgh, so pitch us your stories. They pitched us by going to the submissions page at risk-show.com and you can too for almost all of the dates I'm about to read to you right now where Risk is coming next on April 26. We are back at Caveat in New York City on April 26th. On May 17th, we're in Kansas City, Kansas, technically Lawrence, Kansas, but we're still taking pitches for that May 17th show. On May 18th, we're in St. Louis, Missouri. May 18th in St. Louis, keep pitching us folks from St. Louis and come out on May 18th. Now on May 25th, we're back in Atlanta. On June 8th, we're in Tampa. On June 9th, we're in Orlando. We're so excited about those Tampa and Orlando shows. Those will be the first time that Risk has been in Florida at all. So pitch us your stories for those June 8th and June 9th Tampa and Orlando shows. On July 20th, we are in Boston. July 27th, we're back in San Francisco. August 3rd, we're back in Detroit. And let's see, August 10th, Chicago, August 11th, Minneapolis, August 17th, Baltimore, August 18th, D.C., September 6th, Portland, September 7th, Seattle, September 8th, Vancouver. Pitch us your stories, folks, at riskdashshow.com slash submissions. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about the craft of storytelling, we have a school. You can find us at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one training. Uh, we do workshops in person where you can work with other people working on their storytelling. We do corporate workshops for storytelling for business. All that can be found at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
eyes. The list of names of people I'm supposed to read who have pre-ordered the Risk book is getting short. All right, here's the six people who pre-ordered the Risk book in this past week. <laughs> Ray Christian, the Ray Christian, and I hope he, he he's going to share it with that damn hog. <laughs> Amber Trey, I think three of the six have been on the show. Uh, Amber Dre, unforgettable story on the Risk episode called Three Women. Who's next on the list? I've lost the list. See, I've got so much ADD now that I lose track. Oh, uh, where the fuck? Wait, there, my fucking Jesus Christ, where is the list? Oh, here it is. Melissa Flagg. Oh, Melissa Flagg. Thank you so much for pre-ordering the book. Jerlia Craig. Melissa Flagg and Jerlia Craig. You guys, you rhyme. Devin Nordmeyer and Steve Emmerich. Steve Emmerich has also been amazing on the show out there in Reno, Nevada. Okay, that's it this week. Uh, me reading off the names of people who pre-ordered the book. So, pre-order, motherfuckers. Pre-order now. <laughs>